Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Dior Coons was not quite three years old when he vanished. There was a short version telling of this true crime case that someone titled Little Man Lost. That was, and still remains, a perfect title for the start of this true crime story. Dior Coons was a little boy that at times carried himself like a man in a tiny little body. Picture a little boy walking around in cowboy boots, much too big for his little feet. Even his facial expressions would at times remind you of that of an older child, something in his eyes, telling you he was wise for his years. People Magazine called this story without a trace. That would sum up the evidence at the scene nicely. But there is more. More that has been uncovered in the investigation, and more that will be revealed in our follow-up episodes this week here in the garage. Two-year-old Dior Coons disappeared on a camping trip in the remote Idaho mountains. Well, that was the story we were told. That was the story delivered to 911 emergency service personnel back in 2015 from little Dior's mom and dad. They both told the same story. They were out there camping with a small group, and sometime after breakfast, Dior went missing. But there were holes in their story, and questions 
that they could not seem to provide clear answers to. The suspicion was heavy, but things weren't so clear. There were, in fact, two other people on that trip, two others up there that day. We first covered this case back in 2019 in episodes 305 and 306. At that time, the facts of the case were as follows. Dior was missing from Lemhi County, Idaho. It was reported to law enforcement that Dior was last seen on Friday, July 10th, 2015. On that day, Dior J. Coons Jr., just two years old, was with his parents, Jessica Mitchell and Vernal Dior Coons Sr. At the time, the two were engaged to be married. With little Dior and his mom and dad, we have the great-grandfather, Bob Walton, and Bob's longtime friend, Isaac Renwalt. The group was camping at Timber Creek Campground. This is in a remote area filled with mountains close to Lidor, Idaho. At approximately 2.30 p.m. that day, Dior's mother, Jessica, called 911 because her son had disappeared. She said she left the little boy with his great-grandfather and then went to walk around the campground with her fiancé. And when they got back to camp, just a short time later, Dior was gone. Everyone in the group looked for Dior for several minutes before it was decided that they needed to call 911. The parents told Search and Rescue and the Sheriff's Department that Dior never went anywhere without his blanket or his toy monkey. And yet these items were found at the group's camping spot. The search that day turned up little to no clues as to the toddler's whereabouts. Crews searched until about 4 a.m. On July 11th, searchers looked on horseback and ATVs. They focused on a two-and-a-half-mile radius around the campground. One area of concern was a creek just about 15 yards away from the campsite. Sunday, July 12th, they had nearly 200 volunteers show up to assist in the search efforts. Monday, July 13th, there was an official interview with the media. This is when Dior's parents, Vernal and Jessica, explained what happened the previous Friday afternoon. During that interview, they said that they no longer believed that Dior was lost, but think that someone may have abducted their son. That evening, there was a candlelight vigil. Over the course of the next six days, search efforts continued near the campground. Dive crews focused on the stone reservoir, Dior's parents remained camped out near the site. The Bonneville County Sheriff's dive team was called in to help. Divers used a sonar robot to search the reservoir. On July 19th, it had been 10 days since Dior was last seen. And through all of the efforts, no evidence has been found to suggest where the two-year-old boy may be. At the time that Dior was reported missing, he was said to be wearing a camouflage jacket, blue pajama pants, green and black checkered socks, and brown cowboy boots with brown camouflage print. In the summer of 2015, Dior was three foot tall and about 30 pounds. 
Caucasian with blonde hair, brown eyes, and a birthmark on the back of his neck. Dior's nickname is Little Man. Are Little Dior's parents hiding something? And if so, what? Why did this little boy simply disappear without a trace? This is True Crime Garage. All right, joining us in the garage today, we have Philip Klein from Klein Investigations, who has been keeping an eye and actively working the continued investigation of missing little boy Dior Coons Jr. And Philip is here to set the record straight on a couple of items. We covered this case way back in 2019. So there's been some things to come out, and there's been some things that have been uncovered by Klein Investigations, and Philip is here to bring us up to speed as to where the case stands today in 2023. Philip, go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your background or at least the investigation's background. Sure, sure. I uh, have been an investigator since 1982. Uh, worked with a company called Prudential Equifax. I'm sure you guys have heard of those two companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked my way all the way up to senior investigator uh, for Prudential Equifax. Uh, I went away uh, for about a year on a political campaign, and I came back um, to southeast Texas, and I decided to hang my own shingle back in 1994. Uh, we specialize in missing persons cases around the world. Um, we started off with our first big case, which was back in, I guess, it was 1995, when a uh, high school teacher ran off with a student and ended up in Centauri Island, Greece, on a cruise ship, uh, not as a passenger, but as an empl- two employees. And we were able to work with uh, the United States government um, on that and bring them back and extradite them back to the United States. So that was our first big case. And then everything just kind of fell from there. We've, uh, we've brought back both dead and alive. Uh, we've brought back probably over 1800, uh, cases, uh, in my career. Um, I am the team leader. So I'm the guy at the top that takes all the hits and we really have, uh, worked hard to, uh, along with um, the Missing Persons Division up at uh, the Department of State uh, in the United States federal government. And as well, uh, we have worked very, very hard uh, to work with uh, state, federal, and uh, local law enforcement around the United States because, you know, believe it or not, guys, there are police departments that don't have the resources. Uh, some police departments we've worked with have never seen a homicide. Some people, some some of the officers that we worked with have never worked a missing persons case or a homicide. It's been kind of a, a love relationship that we've had with the private security world and or we're commonly called government contractors, the government itself uh, to work together as a team to bring solace and peace to some of these families out there that have missing persons. Little Dior Coons Jr. was two years old going on three back in 2015, and his 
parents, Vernal Coons and Jessica Mitchell, were due to be married or, or were engaged, from my understanding, at that time in 2015. They go out on a camping trip, the three of them along with Jessica Mitchell's grandfather, Bob Walton, and his one-time neighbor turned friend, Isaac, on this camping trip. And unfortunately, at some point, Dior Coons goes missing, or at least that's the narrative that we've been fed for a long period of time. And when does Klein Investigations come into play in this missing persons case? So we came into the case uh, what we call cold. When the family first contacted us, we had just brought back uh, a, a, a toddler that we found alive, as a matter of fact, uh, in Michigan. So it played real hard in the media up uh, on the northern side of the United States. And so they called us. They wanted to talk to us, some of the ulterior family members, not Jessica, uh, not Vernal, but some of the ulterior family members called us and said, look, we've read about you guys. Can, you, can we consult? So we got them on a conference call and we listened to what they had to say. It was presented to us that the four people being Bob, uh, Isaac Renwall, Jessica, and Vernal went up on a camping trip. Now, depend upon who you talk to in this case of those four, their stories just never matched. Uh, there were some people that said, yeah, uh, we, we, uh, at this time we stopped by Walmart. So, of course, you know, all the police, FBI, us, everybody gets over to the Walmart and they say, no, we don't have that on camera. And that was the first kind of red flag. We went, okay, maybe maybe the, 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 the camera time is wrong. Maybe the employees are wrong. Maybe Walmart security is wrong. You know, it, it happens, right? Some people make mistakes. There's, there's breakdowns of equipment, that sort of thing. So what we did next was we said, well, okay, let's do this. Let's take a look uh, on the actual fact witnesses that were there that day. So we interviewed them just before we even took the case. We interviewed them and they were saying, no, we don't remember them coming in. We don't remember any of this. So we kind of raised our eyebrows a little bit thinking, okay, there's more to this story. So we talked to the family and the family said, we don't have, we don't have the money. And we said, well, we're a pretty big company and we have a little internal foundation inside our group. What we will do is we will pay for the employees to come up if you guys pay for the expense to fly the dogs in if necessary, expense to fly in the interviewers if necessary, and the expense to fly the base team in to uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and we'll base out of there because that's where you all live, and we'll, we'll, we'll start this case. And so... That's how it all got started. Uh, we flew up there. They raised money. They did, uh, I guess, uh, what pancake lunches. They did pies. They did dinners. They people, a couple of benefactors up there, put the money uh, into the trust account. And so, what we did at that point was we had enough money to get started. They eventually finished it up within about a month of paying the full retainer. We've already talked about the retainer in the, to the general public. It was twenty thousand dollars. Some people go, wow, that's a lot of money. Well, yes, it is. But coming from Texas, bringing dogs and people and putting them up and feeding them, 
you know, that gets to be a little bit expensive. People say, well, you never gave a good accounting. Well, we did. We gave a great accounting. The judge looked at it after we were sued. We'll get to that. And he said, no, that's reasonable. And there's the receipts and everything's good. And we were like, we don't just run around and take people's money because that's going to kill our company if we ever got caught doing that. So long story short, we got up there and we got started. Well, the first thing we did was we interviewed the family and each one of the people up on the mountain. Out of all the interviews that we did, and we did not just one interview, we did multiple interviews with them. The only one that had the same story every time, and I'm talking down to the minute, I'm talking down to the hour, I'm talking down to to uh, the date of to uh, how it all got started, uh, why they were going up there. Everything has been Isaac Renoir. His his story's never changed. Once I think the FBI and the local police, we met with them after five days of interviews of people. We sat down with them in a room, and then we ended up at a Mexican restaurant because none of us have eaten for four days. We sat down in a room with them and said, okay, here's what they've told us. Mm-hmm. And they just stood there with their mouths open. And we said, well, what, did, did we say something wrong? Did we, you know, what's going on? They said, hold on a minute. Then they wanted to focus on, uh, they wanted to focus on the parents at first. Uh, Vernal didn't tell them 50% of what he told us. That's natural sometimes because there's shock and trauma when you, when you lose somebody is there's little things you forget. Okay. So we, we gave room for that, okay? We were like, hey, he might have been a little bit upset. But here's the story he told. The story Bernal Coons told us was this. They got up to, and there was a bunch of, you know, hey, we we left Idaho Falls. It's a two and a half hour trip. We were had an axle problem. We had, they, here's where he told us the story that he never told anybody else. He said, well, we got to a restaurant uh, in the city on the night they arrived, uh, which was, I believe, a Thursday night. They arrived, and um, there was a place where we all wanted to eat. So we stopped at this bar restaurant, and up there, I'm sure as you all know, um, the the sun doesn't go down till what, 11, 12 at night sometimes mm-hmm. uh, during, the middle, during the summertime during that period. Correct. And so they come up to the door and the restaurant owner says, uh, we're closed, go away. Well, we're closed, go away. We're not feeding anybody. So they all load back up in their cars and they go up the mountain, okay, to the, um, the little camping area that is a subject of this case. They say they park all the cars in a semicircle. We're like, okay. They parked in a semicircle. Once they park in a semicircle, they start unloading everything, get the chairs out, get the food, get the uh, coolers out, get all this stuff out of, of these cars. And little Dior is running around uh, in, the, in the campfire area. They light a campfire. It's a pretty big campfire. So after they get everything unloaded and kind of get settled and they start, you know, having snacks, because they haven't eaten any dinner. And this is now at this point, it's about 10 or 11 at night. Uh, 
Um, it's getting dark. And somebody turns around and goes, where's Dior? Vernal says, well, I don't know. Let me go look around. He says, Daddy, Daddy, over here. So Vernal tells us this story that, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, I went over and I found little Dior with his hands in the tailpipe. He's black head to toe because he's wiped the soot off of the tailpipe all over his face, uh, on his arms. He's just being a kid, right? This is how it's, it's portrayed to us. We're like, well, kids do that. And then he says, um, well, he, there was a lug nut missing from the back tire. And he says, look, Daddy, no lug nut. And I don't know what kids say that, but maybe they do. we got to take it at face value. Then he says, well, Daddy, um, uh, look, look over here. And he goes over to the trailer that was uh, the, the grandfather's, and he points to a lug nut. And so we're like, uh, okay, what does this all have to do with your son going missing? Well, I'm just telling you the story for the timeline. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we sit there, and immediately one of the police officers had given us the initial written statements from, from Vernal. He doesn't mention any of that. And then they give us a forensics sheet that shows us, hey, the tire he's pointing to, there was blood found, a uh, blood pathogen found on the uh, interior rim, and also blood pathogen found traces, a blood pathogen found on the bumper in the same place that they're talking about. Well, that kind of raised all of our eyebrows, like, Okay, did we get a match? Well, we don't have anything to match it to, no DNA. Okay, is it human? Yeah, we believe it's human, but we're not 100% sure. We're about 50%. That's what they tell us. We're like, okay. Uh, so it's just another, you know, remember, investigators like us, what we do is we put things together like a puzzle, okay? And we put the puzzle together one piece at a time. So that's just a piece of the puzzle. When we played that original interview for the police, they were just shocked because not only was that mentioned, but the police had interviewed the people at the, at the, I guess you call it a bar restaurant, right? We ate there. It was good food. Uh, but they, at the bar restaurant, they, uh, uh, they said, no, that's that's not true. That never happened. So the stories, what I'm trying to get to a long way around it is, the stories didn't match from the witnesses to Coons and the rest of the family. And, you know, Jessica goes into a big thing, how she got Dior out of the back seat and brought Dior around to the front of the restaurant. And the restaurant people said, no, she never did that. She stayed in the truck the whole time. Right. So we were all like, okay, somebody... Just tell us the truth here. But again, remember, guys, when you get involved in these investigations, as long as I've been doing them for 40 years, I can tell you that things, the, the work, what's the, what's the old saying? The worst, uh, the worst witness is the eyewitness, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, oh, yeah, I remember this now. Oh, yeah, I remember that now. Uh, video works wonder, wonders, right? And, but, but eyewitnesses sometimes forget things. 
So we just chalked it up as that. You know, maybe they're just, maybe everybody's just not on the same page on this. So we interviewed Jessica. Jessica was at best evasive. The person that handled that um, that part of the interview was MJ Holmes, and she is an investigator out of Georgia, and she maybe is one of the best interviewers that I have ever watched. And according to a lot of the cops that watched the interview that she did with him, uh, they say that she's one of the best interviewers they've worked with in a long time. So she was very evasive with us. We all kind of got a shot at her. Uh, Caroline Gear in our office got a shot at her. Uh, and she just kind of, she wouldn't look at us. She'd look away. She, you know, did the, the funny ha-ha thing, knocked her Coke over I mean, there was, she was nervous as nervous can be. And I get that. You got cameras on you. You got four seasons of investigators shooting questions at you. We get it. But we finally got her at ease and she started to flow. She didn't know the story about the getting head to toe soot on the child. She didn't know anything about a lug nut. She didn't. So now we have someone that's there that's the parent going, I don't know any of this. Well, who's told you this? And we said, well, it, you know, that's the story Vernal gave. Well, he never told me that. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. So we have a breakdown in the story. And it's a pretty good story. I mean, I don't know if I'm a mommy and I'm out there camping. How am I going to clean my kid up before we go to bed at night, right? You know, are you going to let a kid have a bunch of soot and grime and dirt all over him? Right. You know, not happening. Right. So the story goes to, and I'm just giving you highlights. The story goes to the next morning. Uh, Jessica and Vernal sleep in the back of the Suburban, right? Or the back of the, there's a Suburban up there, which is Bob's Suburban. And they sleep in the back of the Suburban. And we ask, well, where does, where does Dior sleep? And they say, oh, he sleeps in the front seat. We bundled him up in the front seat. And he's laying down in the front seat. And he, 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 he he goes to sleep. Well, they say at about 8.30, and their story match, there's a rap on their window. And Vernal gets up and goes, what? And it's Isaac. And Isaac goes, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. <laughs> so they kind of look out there, and there's Bob and Isaac, and they're making breakfast. So Vernal says he gets up. Uh, Jessica says she gets the baby up. And they go wandering around uh, for breakfast. Well, during our interview with Isaac, Isaac says, I never saw the kid that day. Right. And we're like, what? He goes, no, I never saw him. Uh, I mean, I, I might have saw him one time, but I never really placed my eyes on him. And we ask uh, the dad um, and he, uh, the grandpa, and the grandpa tell us, he says, well... I, I don't know. I might have seen him, might not have seen him. I mean, it's a very telling interview. And then he goes, he kind of looks over at Holmes and he goes, but you know what? I got to tell you all this. What's done is done. And we're like, what? What's, what's done is done. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, dude. What are you trying to tell us? And he says, "I'm telling you, what's done is done. They can, uh, they can, uh, they can go have sex and have another baby." And it, it, and I was so infuriated. If you, if we ever release the interview, to which we will, uh, I was so infuriated. I got a laptop and I threw it against a wall. 
And I got in his face and I said, let me tell you something. Are you telling us that that baby's dead? Because you better start speaking up right now. I'm just telling you what's done is done. That's what he told us. It's right on camera. We got the audio. We got the video. And uh, and so he says, I've got, I, I, I got to, I've, I've got to take a break. I said, you take a break, get your head together, and then get back in here, and then let's let's discuss this. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. 
Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, welcome back. Cheers, mates. Some fascinating stuff coming out of this investigation from Klein Investigations, and we're talking to Philip. Philip is ramping up the investigation again into missing child Dior J. Coons Jr. Dior's been missing since July 10th of 2015. So we happen to speak with Philip Klein this week. And oddly enough, Captain, we are coming up on eight years now that the little two-year-old has been missing. He was about two and a half years old at the time that he goes missing on this supposed camping trip. Now, Philip is able to fill in a lot of the blanks and, and add to add some evidence to the speculation that has been and has remained in this case during that eight-year time period. All right, Colonel, let's get back to our interview with Philip. Well, Philip, one of the big questions that most people have in the true crime community is, was there evidence that Dior was actually at the campsite? Uh, Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, yeah, is the answer. We believe he was there. And I'll tell you why uh, here in just a second. It sounds like from those stories that, that Dior may have been there the night before. 
Well, that's the theory we've always run with. We have never looked at this as a as a homicide. Right. We have never looked at this as a homicide. We've always, and I think I've said this in public before. We've always looked at this as an accidental death and a cover up, and that's what the FBI. And I don't speak for them, and I'm not speaking for the sheriff. I'm telling you, that's the way all of us have looked at this. Because on that first meeting, when we presented everything that we had, they went, yeah, you're, we have run with Vernal may have been trying to move the, 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 the truck or the Suburban. That's where the blood came from, and he ran over his son. And they hid the body, and they, uh, they went and uh, buried the body or took care of the body. And I'll tell you how we think the whole thing went down. Bottom line is this. When when the grandfather said that, he came back in the room and, and, and one of the interviewers looked at, I think it was Holmes, looked at where he was sitting. He had peed all over the chair, the floor, uh, and... Uh, wait, uh, wait, who who peed all over the chair and the floor? The, the, the grandfather. Okay, uh, and he, he was in poor health. He was elderly at the time, but... If he were to protect somebody, he would have a vested interest, obviously, in protecting his granddaughter, Absolutely. Jessica, be out yeah. of out of, you know, love for his granddaughter. But also she is kind of his caretaker at the yep. time. Yep. You're right on it. So um, so we just kind of, you know, I, I moved the chair. I said, I have a dry chair for you. We went and got some towels and sat down. I said, listen, if I owe you an apology for yelling at you before we start the cameras back up, I, I, I apologize. But I kind of getting the feeling you know more and that's where we're going with it and he just shook his head like yes Hmm. i said okay let's turn the cameras back on and so it was kind of what frank vilt went through that was the first pi uh frank vilt was the first one to um how do I want to say uh, that we contacted that was former law enforcement, U.S. Marshal. We have a great relationship with the marshals. So, you know, and he kind of done some digging on us. And so he knew who we were. Right. And, and, and Vilt had offered to put up a reward of his own money, $25,000. And the parents wouldn't let him. The parents wouldn't let him. And so he said at that point, he just bowed out and said, no, I don't want any part of this. He had the sense, he's smart enough to know, he had the sense to get get away from it as fast as he could. So, long story short, we, we finished the interviews up, we interviewed everybody, there was, everybody had, everybody was, every just, every different direction. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. And so, again, we met with law enforcement, we met with the FBI, we all sat in a room, we went over our notes, the smarter people than me, because there are smart, a lot smarter people than me, uh, Holmes and Gear and all these other guys, they were talking on a level psychologically. Uh, and and it, it came to the conclusion, okay, we're in this thing. We're not getting out. Oh, boy, the parents are an issue. So the, the sheriff, the first sheriff, said, um, okay, what uh, we need to do is, Klein, keep doing your thing. We'll keep doing our thing, and we'll all get back together in about six weeks, and we'll we'll discuss where we all are. So that's kind of the opening to the case. That's how it got started. That's our first trip up there. That's our first interview up there that we had with anybody. Uh, as you guys know, it's always smart for an investigator to come in cold, uh, and, and we did. We went in cold. 
And, uh, you know, the, the only, the thing that kind of broke it, broke it open for us, uh, was, uh, uh, was Bob, uh, and his statements and, and, and what he said in the family generational tree, we were able to build of, of who the players were, who would protect who, if they necessary needed to, uh, you know, and we were able to put that information together into a, 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 a great opportunity for all of this, the psychological people uh, to get started on this case, both in uh, Quantico, Virginia, uh, in our office, and of course, up there. Um, so that's how it started. Where did the investigation lead you? So now you're sitting there, you have some information from Bob. And what's, what's really interesting too, is now you're, you're meeting with law enforcement. And the Jessica and Vernal, the parents have told one story to law enforcement, and it doesn't sound like they're telling you a different story. They're telling you an expanded version of well, what they what they conveniently may have left out when talking to law enforcement. So you're right, right. And then what they did was law enforcement was very, very smart. What they did was um, they gave them a written statement. Now, you guys know about handwriting analysis. I've heard y'all talk about it before. Right. Um, they got Vernal's and Jessica, excuse me, Vernal and Jessica's uh, handwriting uh, on their initial statement. And then the 911 call, they compared it to that. And we were talking about that. And Jane said, uh, that's MJ Holmes said, well, look, I've got a contact with Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Give me their handwriting analysis. Give me their handwriting and we'll send it over for handwriting analysis. And everybody that's in the business knows the state of Georgia has the best handwriting analysis team in the United States, even better than the FBI, I'd say. And these five guys that deal with that got these handwriting analysis and they were like, those are two liars. They're just lying. They're just flat out lying. So we send sent up the 911 calls to them and they listened to the 911 calls compared to Vernal's statement and compared to Jessica's statement. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. These, these guys are lying bad. Tell us about the case. And that's kind of... That's kind of when we kind of jumped off the ship uh, of Jessica and Vernal and, 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 and what they said. There are a couple of different times that we have listed for when this call comes in. The 911 call is placed by Mother Jessica Mitchell. And in the reports we have here, Captain, the times vary from 2.25 p.m. all the way to 2.36 p.m. Now, that seems like a minor discrepancy in only a matter of about 11 minutes. But there is some importance to that because we have statements from both parents that Vernal, the father, was attempting to get a signal. So he drops Jessica Mitchell off because she has one bar for service on her phone. She wants to call 911 as quickly as possible. Vernal says that he decides he's going to continue on down the road to a spot where he knows his phone will have service. He was worried that his phone would cut off halfway. And so you can see why the the times of these are important because what we have here is two things. One, you can hear something in the background. We cannot determine who that is speaking in the background of Jessica Mitchell's cell phone call to 911. 
But what we do have on the 911 call, at some point, the operator, the emergency services personnel, ask Jessica, is that your husband calling in on another line? And to which she agrees. And the reason why this will be important, you will see later from Philip Klein's statements about what they uncovered in their investigation, is that this is where there are obvious signs of lies coming from Vernal and Jessica Mitchell. What's the address of your emergency? Um, I'm actually camping in Red Ore, just outside of Red Ore. Uh-huh. Um, my two-year-old son, um, we can't find him. How long has he been missing? About an hour. Yeah. Are you by water? Yes. Do you know which campground you're in? Uh, it's Stone Reservoir, Timber Creek. Stone Reservoir? Yeah, or Timber Creek. Hold on. We need search and rescue. Jessica? Jessica? Yeah? What's your son's name? Okay, what is he wearing? He was wearing cowboy boots, a blue um, pair, like pajama pants, and a camel jacket. And he's got shaggy blonde hair. Is your husband calling too? Like, all down where we were camping at, and we can't find him at all. Okay, we need you to stay within cell service. We've got people going on, on the way. Thank you. So between the discrepancies in the 911 call and their stories and this handwriting analysis that shows that they're being not truthful, you guys feel like your investigation is on to something. We... We knew at that point we had something, we were getting somewhere and we were moving the case forward. And that's when we flew up the team the second time for the second, uh, we, we came up, I think it was like five weeks later and we came up for the second time. And this time we spent, oh my goodness, we spent, I think 10 days up there. Um, and we started interviewing everyone. The whole team was up there. We spread everyone out from point A to point B. And I think they started getting nervous because they knew we went to the Crown Bar, and that's the name of the place. We interviewed the folks over at the bar, and they oh, out there in Led, Led, it's pronounced Led Door. Every time I, every time I, uh, Every time I say it, everybody always corrects me. No, it's not Ledore. It's Ledore. And so um, we had the dogs out there. Trace uh, Sargent, who is probably one of the best dog handlers out of, out of the United States, uh, Homeland Security slash uh, there's a county up there she does. Uh, she bases her licenses with. And uh, she brought her dog, and we were able to garner hits. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but anyway, we got to the bar where they said, you know, where they first said, well, we went in and they told us to leave and we were inside and we had to go to the bathroom. We had to do all that. Well, the people that owned the, the bar went, mm, no, that never happened. And we said, oh, okay. Then they told us the story during the second set of interviews. They told us the story of how they had to go get diesel fuel for their pickup truck. And that so, and she needed to go down to the stage stop and get some feminine products. And we were like, well, well, okay. So what do good investigators do? We go check out their story. Well, we knew the bar was BS, right? 
we knew we got over to the stage stop and met with them and they said, do y'all want their receipts? And we were like, huh? <laughs> like receipts, like plural. We were told they went into the stage stop and they, they bought feminine products and they bought, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, it was like a little uh, gummy worms or I forget what it is. But anyway, uh, for the baby and they, they, they bought a bunch of stuff and they spent about 50 bucks. Well, there were two visits to the stage stop. The first visit was just gum and candy and that's it. And then about an hour later, there was a second visit, a second visit to the stage stop. And that's where the tampons came in and, and that sort of thing. So we said, well, we asked Vernal again, hey, Vernal, how many times you go to the stage stop? Well, once. You didn't go twice. No, didn't go twice. Who went in? Oh, that was me. I went in. We all went in. And we said, okay, well, according to what the witnesses we visited with, it was Jessica both times. Vernal never came in, and there was no sign of Dior. You know, Dior goes into this big thing about the, the, the little baby and how the little baby was running around inside the store, and everybody was like, oh, how cute. And it was very busy because there's campers everywhere. And he tells this long, drawn-out story about being a trucker and how the beer truck got there, and he wanted to take the baby over to go see the the beer truck. And of course we hunt down the beer truck and the beer truck guy goes, what are you talking about? I had no guy ever came up to me with the, and I never let anybody sit up in my truck. And I never, I never saw that. And then an 18 wheeler and he gave us the name of the 18 wheeler company. And when he gave us the name of the 18 wheeler company, we found out that that company had been defunct for three years, number one, but number two, um, there was, there was, we found a driver of an 18 wheeler that was there in the same four hour period, right? Because we got that from license plate recognition. And he says, nobody's ever done that. So that part of the story falls apart. So now the whole stage stop story that the parents had put out is nothing but misinformation, a lie. And we're like, okay, well, wait, what's going on here? And so I'll move it forward without taking up a bunch of your time because I know you guys will have a bunch of questions. Um, we, uh, we called a family meeting and we told the family, hey, we got problems. And they're like, what are you talking about? We have problems. Your story does not match what the witnesses are telling us. Oh, you're just trying to say we did it. No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, I'm going to hire a lawyer. You need to hire a lawyer. That's the reason we're here. There was like eight family members and my team sitting at the table. And we've got it recorded where we said, you need to go hire a lawyer. You need to get your story straight because I'm telling you, we know and we're sharing with law enforcement because that's our agreement with them. And, you know, we're moving the case forward. We've got to get this timeline laid out. We've got to figure this thing out because... The timeline you give us and the timeline we've developed through witnesses that you gave us doesn't even come close to matching. And that's when one of my uh, investigators kept, kind of kept, you know, trying to hint to me something was going on. And I kind of looked around this restaurant and I was like, what? 
And she goes, that guy right there. And there's a guy sitting above the tables. And and it was the it was the uh, now famous lawyer, uh, and uh, he uh, he's walking around and uh, he's trying to hear the conversation. It was really kind of embarrassing. Uh, uh, his name was Alan Browning, and it was just kind of embarrassing what he was doing. And I said, "Good, you got a lawyer." I was very positive about it. And he could, the lawyer comes down and starts screaming and yelling at me. And, you know, and I'm like, dude, calm down. We're trying to help this family. We've been up here three times now. We're trying to help this family. If there's a case where an accident happened, because that's what it looks like. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. So Jill uh, uh, Coons, who is the ante to, uh, to uh, uh, Vernal, uh, hires, pays $1,500 and hires this lawyer. And that's when, you know, he fires us and he gets the father all spun up. And we're like, well, there you go. And then to end this part of it, because I I think you guys will have questions at this point. uh, After the attorney was hired, we started getting threatening letters uh, and the threatening letters were really, really ugly. Um, you know, they fired us. But once they fired us, another family member called us immediately and says, I'm sending you X amount of dollars uh, to help for the cause. You're hired again. I'm going to be the client. Keep going. And so we said, okay. And so we did. So that gives you the 411. Something we should reiterate here, Captain, for the listeners, for those who may not be so familiar with this case, Vernal, the father, also goes by the name Dior. So that can make the story a little confusing at times. You hear investigator Philip Klein there. He does reference Vernal as Dior in that last portion of the story. Now back to the interview. Philip, let's hone in on one thing real quick here because I find this to be very intriguing and probably the centerpiece of your investigation. This story that Vernal gives you regarding the blood on his truck, the blood on the inside of the tire, let's hone in on that. Now, we do not know, to be perfectly clear, we do not know if, in fact, that is human blood or even Dior Jr.'s blood because that is evidence that is in the custody of law enforcement. But regardless, this is a story that Vernal is telling you that they did not tell to the sheriff's office and very likely because they know that the sheriff's office has that blood evidence. It's, it's a little tricky here, but let's hone in on that for a minute, please. Right. The, 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 the part of the tire, according to Vernal, this is a story he gave us. The, the tire that was facing the fire, you know, remember they set up a campfire, etc. He says that there was a lug nut missing from that tire. That interested the baby. The baby got back there, started putting his hands in tailpipes. And one of my questions was, and you can see it when we release it, well, wait a minute now. If you guys had just gotten there, the tailpipe's got to be what? 200 degrees or coming down from, you know, running all that time between uh, Idaho Falls and up the mountain. It's got to be hotter than a pistol. Was there any burns on his hands? Just to ask him, was there burns? And, oh, no, 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 no. It was, it was cooled off. He just had soot. He had soot. 
soot from the tailpipes. And there's double tailpipes. He put his arms in the tailpipes. Once they got the samples, and this is the other thing that kind of bothered us. Once they got samples of the blood in the wheel well and on the bumper, uh, they got home, they left, and they went home, uh, and Bernal sold that truck and to a scrapyard, and it was scrapped. And we, because that's the first question we asked, well, where's the truck? Well, how old was how old was the truck? Do you know? Oh, I you know to hear him talk about it, it was fifty years old. To hear witnesses talk about it and look at the title, it was at that point. And this is back in what sixteen? It was an eleven or a ten. That was a was it a dually a black yeah yeah it was yeah. a black black dually and so he he Vernal doesn't tell you about the blood right this is oh this, no he tells oh, he you tell me anything yeah he tells it's, you the soot story the lug nut story and then you go and you're talking with law enforcement law enforcement is like well he never told us the soot story the lug nut story this is interesting to us because oh by the way private investigators we found what we believe is blood on portions of that truck. Yep. We and, threw it out on the table on a napkin. And uh, of course, everybody that's going to listen to this, they're scratching their heads going, well, Philip and, and uh, law enforcement and FBI, everybody involved. What, what's the, what's up with that blood? And, and I think we need to point out here. That's, that is, if it is evidence of anything, that is evidence that is in someone else's custody. That's law enforcement's custody, yep. something that that's you don't have access to. And it seems like a, uh, a step, a big step in the right direction would be to determine if it was human blood. And look, I, I get it that he's young, two, two and a half years old, roughly Dior Coons. And we may not have his DNA or something like that on file, but there should be some kind of record from his birth of the blood type. They did. And they, and they, and, and let me tell you the other part of the story. So when the FBI sees the truck, and went down to the warehouse and got all the samples. Uh, they did get some bleach samples, uh, whereas uh, it, it, there was an attempt to clean up the wheel well and clean up the bumper. Now, according to Vernal, oh, I wash my truck all the time. I keep it in clean, immaculate condition. Um, okay. Well, hold on. If you clean that your truck all the time and it's in immaculate condition, why are you scrapping your truck? There you go. Now you're thinking like us. Everything that comes out of this guy's mouth is is just opposite of, of, of what the reality was. Maybe in his mind he kept it super clean. I don't know, but I don't think so. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't he tell why wouldn't he tell the cops? On the initial interview, why wouldn't he put in his uh, on, on his third interview? Why didn't he put that in his written statement? Why didn't he say, "Well, the night before"? I mean, that's important. That's very important uh, because I don't know about you. I, you know, they said, "Okay, tell us the story from the time you got up there to the time you guys left and went back home without the baby," and he mentions nothing to it. Nothing. Nothing. Zero. I mean, it's crazy. Now, what he did, we did talk to him, and I think this is important because this has always been something that some of these internet sleuths always point to. They say, well, a big bird or a big animal, be a bear or a mountain lion or something, could have gotten the kid. 
while he was walking around the campsite. Right. And we're like, yeah, that could have happened. So the first thing in law enforcement, especially those guys up there that deal with that all the time, right? They're not like inner city cops in Chicago that deal with homicide all the time, but they do deal with animals and rabbit animals and they deal with that crap all the time. They, um, <clears throat> so according to every zoologist that we spoke with, I even went over to the city of Houston Zoo. Uh, this is not a joke. I went over to the city of Houston Zoo and went over and talked to the, 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 the uh, I forget the name of their, God, I should go back to college, uh, the, the, the lions <laughs> and the tigers and bears and all these guys over there. And I talked to them and said, look, I got a case. I need to know. And each one of them said, oh, no, no, no. Here's what would have happened. Number one, the child would have screamed yeah. because that, animal is going to bite down on them and shake them and blood's going to go everywhere. Guts are going to go everywhere. Everything's going to go everywhere. And they're going to put their paws on top of that animal because that's what they do. Watch and see what some of these wild kingdom shows put up. He said, and that's what they told me, go watch this stuff. And I was like, I'm, I'm not interested, but I will go watch it. A bear does the same thing but the bear uses its claws right. to kill the animal first and then to start eating on it. There would have been blood, guts, shoes. Because uh, remember, Vernal goes through this big, long story about, oh, he put boots on that didn't fit him. That's what he wore around the campground. Yep. But we would have had boots. We would have had thousands of things. And, and, and none of that happened. Now, to go back to your question about why we think he was there for a period of time. There's a thing called the diaper tree. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with it, but there was a thing called a diaper tree. So what they do is when a child pees or poops in the diaper, what they do is they put it in a trash bag and they raise it up on a rope up onto a tree so that it does not attract animals. It will attract animals, but the animals won't come in and tear it up and, you know, being raccoons. Because uh, the, the animals would dig through the trash if you just put exactly. it in the trash. So all the trees up in the uh, Chance, which is the dog that we brought up there, which is a, a dog that's still to this day is finding war, uh, turn of the century skeletons in fields up in Virginia and West Virginia, you know, where all the, where, where the wars happened up there, uh, he's still finding bodies up there. So that's how good this dog is. And so he hit right there. Now, why is that important? Well, not only did our, is that particular dog trained on blood, but it's also trained on urine, feces, you know, those sort of things. Because remember, when you die, you lose your bowels. You lose your your urine. That's what happens. You just, you, you lose it all. And so there was no sign of that. But equally interesting, the dog did not hit anywhere in the campground, just the diaper tree. So what does that tell us as investigators? Okay, it didn't happen here that we know of, okay? So right. we took the dog down the hill um, from the campsite, you know, where Vernal says, oh, I, I went a mile and a half away and used the phone. Well, we went a mile and a half away and there's no cell service there. None. Zero done at all. Okay. It's blocked by the mountains. 
but we did go down to where he slipped at one point and mentioned the cattle guard, and we sent the dog uh, down the hill from the cattle guard, thinking, okay, if somebody's going to dispose of a body, what they do is they go down the hill from the cattle guard, maybe dig a hole, bury it, cover it up. None of the search the searchers just missed it while they were up there, etc. The dog starts hitting all over down the bottom of this hill. Then the dog stops, and we look, and there's like a little ravine, kind of like a little stream area that goes down that way. Uh, from the top of the hill, the dog's ears perk up, and that dog takes off and goes to the top of the hill and goes and sits down on this big area up there uh, of, of uh, it's, it's kind of loose dirt, et cetera, and he's going nuts. He's like, oh, so we call in the sheriff, and the sheriff gets up there. Um, Limhi County gets up there. Everybody gets up there, and we do a dig. And nobody knows about this dig. This is the first time I'm telling people about it. Right. We do a dig, and we dig down, and we don't find anything other than loose dirt. It's all loose, very, very, very loose. But the dog's still going nuts. The dog is like, no, 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 keep going. There's something there. And we keep digging and digging, and we, we couldn't find anything. So then we all start sitting on the back of pickup trucks, and we drinking our little Kool-Aid or, or whatever we're drinking to keep our water up, and we start talking. And somebody says, you know, what's the inventory on the truck? Was there anything missing on in by the campers? And we go back to what Bob Walton told us, which was, well, yeah, we got all of our coolers back but one. He was trying to deflect from was there anything missing, right? Was there any uh, was there any shovels missing? Was there any anything missing? And yes, there was a shovel missing. So we're like, huh? Wait a minute. How big was that cooler? And he starts telling us how big that cooler was. We go over and measure it out, and guess what? The measurements match where we were digging. So we're now we're like, okay, if you're going to dispose of a body, how are you going to do it? You're going to, you know, you could put it in a cooler and then you could bury it. And then when everybody gets up there, uh, uh, you know, the dogs aren't going to hit on it because the dogs are scent dogs. They're not death dogs. They're scent dogs. There's two different types of scent dogs. There's death and, and alive, right? And they can find a trail. Right. None of the dogs, they never brought the dogs over to that area and cars were parked all over the place. Fire trucks, everything was parked all over the place. And I guess they didn't just search that area. I asked if they searched that area and a couple of the rescue guys were like, you know, I can't say we did. And so now we're like, okay, now we're putting a theory together. Okay. Now the evidence is giving us a theory. And so that, that explains the, the, uh, the cooler missing, that explains the lack of a scent in, there was no blood, there was no nothing. So now we know, okay, big bad bird or big bad animals didn't get him, okay? Then we go to the kidnapping part. You know, guys, I just got to tell you, I, according to the, 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 the wardens down there, you know, you have to sign up and get a pass to go up there. Nobody signed up and get a pass, but that doesn't mean anything because people go up there all the damn time, right? And so 
we start going back through about, okay, guys, did you hear any cars? Did you hear any, did you see any headlights? Did you see any, and what did you see? Oh, no, 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 no. Because we brought the baby down to go to the stage stop and to go get diesel fuel. And we went, huh, let's go find the diesel fuel guy. So we found the diesel fuel guy and he said, yeah, I remember them. I remember them coming in. I remember pumping their gas because I gave them, I guess, what's it called? Green diesel or red diesel. He had to give them red diesel, I think it was, because that's all he had. And it's not a convenience store. It's a it's a feed store. And these guys have been around forever up there. They know everybody and they, you know, there's a lot of ranching that goes on up there. And so he says, uh, yeah, I, I remember him. I said, do you remember seeing a car seat? He goes, yeah, I remember seeing a car seat. I said, okay, was the baby in the car seat? Because there's no baby in the car seat. The car seat was empty behind the mother's seat, the passenger seat. So you didn't see a baby. No, didn't see a baby. You saw no baby. No. How many gallons of gas you give them? He said only about 20 bucks, which is about eight gallons of gas. Well, listening to Bernal talk about it, his his meter was broken, and he didn't know how much gas he had in there. He 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 had no idea how much gas he had in there. So he liked to keep it topped off. And that kind of got us all going, oh boy, you know, that makes no sense either. So, and of course he said it took him two hours to find the place for the di for the diesel. And that was his explanation away of the two receipts at the Sage Stop. But again, nobody saw him in the Sage Stop. They saw her, right? But they didn't see a baby. They didn't see sweetest fish. That's what the kid likes, sweetest fish. And that's those little gummy bear things. And um, again, all we got is more stories, more lies, more, you know, more everything. So uh, that leads us back to that meeting again. We were fired, rehired, and then we went into stage three and four and five of the case. So there you go. So much more to get to. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Same bat time and same bat channel. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people.